Okay, if you have a Bible <clears throat> with you, please open up to Galatians uh, chapter 3. Last week was uh, Easter Sunday, I took a break from um, my series on Galatians and uh, shared with you a, an Easter message out of Philippians, but today we'll get back to Paul's letter to the Galatians and we'll pick up at chapter 3. <clears throat> Paul wrote most of the New Testament, and for the most part, his writings are well thought out, they're reasonable, they're logical, they follow a, a particular order, and, uh, and he's very good at making a, a sound argument, a sound defense uh, for the faith. Galatians is different among his writings. Far and away, it's the most passionate of his letters. It's not so much a clear point-by-point point defense of the faith. This is Paul um, uh, unmasked. This is Paul, this is the raw passion of his heart responding to people that he's not very happy with. It's far away, like I said, the most passionate of his writings. We looked at the first two chapters, and in those two chapters, Paul is basically responding to false accusations that have been made against him by some Jewish believers. As, as after the resurrection, after Pentecost, this move of God began. What we refer to today as Christianity had its beginning. And the first adherents, the first believers, the first followers of Jesus were all Hebrew. They were all Jewish. And not long after, this same movement of God, much to the surprise of these Hebrew believers was also poured out upon the Gentiles. Radical, earth-shattering, rocked their world, blew their minds. I'm not sure that I could come up with a cultural um, example, a parallel, an analogy that could drive home to us just how earth-shattering this was for these Hebrew believers. They, for all of time, all of their existence, they believed that they alone were God's chosen people and they had this unique special relationship with God and had every reason to believe that things would continue on that path. And then God did something different. God did something unexpected and he actually poured out himself upon these Gentiles. And some of the Hebrews were having a really hard time with this. The Jewish believers were having a hard time with it. And so these are the ones <clears throat> who are making these false accusations against the Apostle Paul. Um, and namely, the accusations they were making were this, that first off, that Paul was a people pleaser, that he was just telling people what, what they wanted to hear to make them happy. Uh, the, another accusation was that, the, that his gospel, the gospel of grace, was false, it was incomplete, it was man-made, and it was not divinely inspired. And finally, and the strongest accusation, and that which Paul is pushing hardest back against right now is this, is that these Jewish believers are telling these Gentiles who are new to the faith that they also need to follow the, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, all the laws in Leviticus. They still need to adhere to Jewish customs and traditions in order to become a follower of Jesus. 
What they're saying is, yes, you're a Gentile, and we understand you want to become a Christian, but what we require of you first is that first you have to be a good Hebrew, and if you become a good Hebrew, then we will allow you to become a good Christian. And Paul is fired up about this, because that's a requirement that religion is putting on these Gentiles that God never had. Jesus came and established a new covenant. And these Hebrew believers, these Jewish believers that Paul calls, he actually calls them false believers in the first two chapters. They're saying that this is required, that they need to be under the old covenant, and they absolutely do not. So this is uh, where we're at. <clears throat> Additionally, there was some question, if you kind of, if you read the white, if you kind of read between the lines, it was clear that there was some question concerning apostolic support. It appears that some of these Jewish believers had an association with the Apostle James, and that these believers from James had, had influence and great sway over Peter, over Barnabas, as well as the other Jewish believers in Antioch. And they were basically saying the same thing, that, that adherence to the Jewish laws and customs were required for salvation. And so Paul tells the story of a very public, face-to-face -face confrontation with Peter over this. And how it eventually got Peter back on track. Um, and this is important, because the groundwork is being laid politically for these Jewish believers to say, hey, Peter is on our side, Paul. Peter doesn't agree with your gospel of grace. P you know, Peter's like the guy. right? He's like the main guy in Christianity. He was the one who stood up at Pentecost, and by all reading of the New Testament, Peter's the guy. He's, he's the main leader. He's the point guy. If they can get Peter on their side, they could sway things to their agenda. And so this argument, Paul could see the significance of it. And this argument was essential. He needed to nip this in the bud, and he needed to confront Peter and do it publicly to get Peter and everyone else back online. And from all that I could read, uh, Paul was successful uh, in swaying them back to the truth. And so with his story complete, Paul again returns his attention back to the Galatians in chapter 3. And this is how, again, his most passionate letter. This is how he begins chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Sounds harsh in the NIV, right? That nothing compared to the way J.B. Phillips translates it. He takes, the, he takes the beginning of verse 1, and he says it this way. Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. <laughs> That's a, that's a little bit more intense, right? Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. Not exactly people-pleasing language, would you agree? So according to Vine's dictionary of biblical words, the word foolish or idiots means not understanding. It means not applying the mind. Significantly, uh, specifically rather here in Galatians 3.1, and again in verse 3, it signifies senselessness or an unworthy lack of understanding sometimes carrying with it a sense of moral reproach and describes a person 
who does not govern his lusts, and it's associated with evil desires. Not good words. Either idiots or foolish. There's no good intent here. It's as, it's as harsh in the definition as it is in the writing. So when Paul calls the Galatians foolish, or Phillips calls them idiots, he's saying that they were capable, they were capable of understanding, they simply lacked the moral fortitude to think it through. They chose not to think it through. So Paul here, he's referring to what they already knew. They already knew the gospel of grace. These are things that they had already been taught. The knowledge, the understanding was there. They simply were not using them. They simply were not applying the knowledge and the truth. He uses the language, he says, who has bewitched you? And so I looked into this. So, you know, is there demonic influence? Is that exactly what was going on here? It, that's a possibility. Anytime we're, we're led away from truth into error, it could, be, it could be a spiritual warfare element to it. Some of the research I have here, I did here on that word bewitched, kind of points in a different direction. That bewitched here is used more figuratively than literally. You could do study on it yourself. I'm just telling you what I discovered. Um, with, the meaning is uh, basically leading someone into uh, an evil doctrine, which is exactly what's happening. What Paul means here is that their thinking is so clouded, so unbiblical, that it seems as if some type of spell, being bewitched, have been cast over them. William Barclay translates this portion of Galatians 3.1 this way. He says, Oh, senseless Galatians, who has put the evil eye on you? Anybody familiar with the term, the evil eye? If you grew up in New York City, in an Italian section of New York City, you're familiar with the terminology of the evil eye. It was never a good thing if you wanted to put the evil eye on somebody. It was, it was pretty offensive, right? I have this picture in my mind's eye of a very angry Italian young girl, wickedly. Anyway. Memories from my childhood. <clears throat> so putting the evil... There wasn't, wasn't Nadine. There were many women before Nadine, but there were a few. When you fall in love at 16, there's not much time for you know, many others. <laughs> Man in the hole should stop digging, right? <laughs> I'm not so sure that the terminology evil eye is common here on PEI, but it was common in Brooklyn when I grew up. The ancient Greeks were accustomed to using it. And the fear was that there was this idea that a spell could be cast on somebody by um, utilizing or using what was called the evil eye. Traditionally, the evil eye was thought to work in the same way that a serpent or a snake would hypnotize its prey with its eyes. Once the victim looked into the evil eye, a cast could be spelled, uh, put, put on a person. So how do you avoid that? And how do you avoid the evil eye? Well, simply don't look at it, right? <laughs> and so really what Paul's doing, I'm trying to play this out here, for this, I've said all that to say this, 
Paul's using this phrase, this word picture, this analogy of being bewitched as a way of exhorting the Galatians to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus. Right? We sang this morning when miracles happen. Miracles happen when we fix our eyes on Jesus. So this is another way of, of Paul exhorting them to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus always, steadfastly on Jesus. Now, I wish the Galatians were some type of an anomaly, that they were the exception to the rule, that the gospel of grace was preached to them and they, they've gone astray. But sadly, they're not an anomaly. How easily the church today is also bewitched, running after modern-day law or modern-day works, forsaking relationship for religion. Sometimes I think we're like spiritual infants who'll shove anything into our mouths, right? Who's, who's had a toddler, right? Anything they can get their hands on and stick right in their mouths. Sometimes people are like spiritual infants. They'll grab anything, anything that's shiny, you know? Anybody ever see the movie Up? The house with all the balloons and it goes up. There was a dog. There was a dog in Up. And he had this collar on that when he would bark, it would sound like words, right? And I love that character because anything that would capture his attention, right? He'd be talking in the middle of a sentence. He'd go, squirrel! <laughs> right? Squirrel went by. I've known prophetic people like that. You're talking to them. All of a sudden, something shiny captures their attention. Squirrel! <laughs> well, I think... Immature Christians are the same way. Something new, something shiny, something captures their attention. Whoa! They grab it, shove it right in their mouth. Or, what the other end of the spectrum, you know, the, with the uh, angry, frustrated, moping teenager who refused to even put the finest of truths <laughs> in their mouth. They wouldn't eat anything. Other times, I think the journey's just harder than we expected. Or, God's not working according to our expectations. We had a plan. We expected B to follow A and C to follow B and D to follow C, and it's just not quite working out that way. Somehow along the line, not according to our plan, X and Y showed up. And we're clueless of what to do. And we're reminded once again the scripture tells us that his ways are not our ways. Right? They're higher than our ways. Sometimes we choose to go our own way instead of his way. So I'm thinking maybe we ought not judge the Galatians too harshly. What do you think? Right? The second half of verse 1, Paul writes, Before your eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified, before your eyes. He's not meaning that, that these Galatians actually physically attended the crucifixion. What he's saying is that he so clearly portrayed the message of the gospel that they might as well have been. So clearly was the truth proclaimed to them. The greatness of God's work for them in the cross. It just had been clearly laid out so clearly that they could or even should have been able to see it and not been led astray by these false Jewish believers. 
of this portion of verse 1, commentator David Guzik writes, he says, the idea behind clearly portrayed is something like billboarded to publicly display as in a setting on a billboard. Paul wonders how the Galatians could have missed the message because he made it clear enough to them. It's as if Paul's saying, I put up this giant, you know, billboard. I put up this giant, you know, video screen. And the message was laid out as clearly as possible. Guys, how could you possibly miss this? You idiots of Galatia. How could you do this? So the, the Galatians, their vision of Jesus and of Christ crucified had become clouded. They no longer see Jesus and his work on the cross as the center of their Christian lives. Instead, now it's become for them Jesus plus. Jesus plus works. Jesus plus what they have to do. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus Jewish laws and customs. Jesus plus performance. When the Galatians walked away from Christ alone to Jesus plus, they walked away from the message of the gospel of grace that Paul had so clearly proclaimed to them. Verse 2. Paul continues. He says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Can, can you hear the disdain in his voice? I'd like to hear just one thing from you. I think that's how he would probably have, have said it if they were face to face. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Just tell me one thing. Are you serious? <laughs> what is wrong with you? See him almost grabbing him by the shoulder like, Ch -ch -ch -ch, wake up! I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? So, get this. I'm astonished by this. I shouldn't be, but I am. These Galatians not only received Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior, but they obviously received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So you can be a believer of Jesus, baptized in the Spirit, and still get deceived. <laughs> still a possibility. It ought not be. But it is. Now for some, accepting Jesus and receiving the Spirit, this is one and the same event for them. A good argument could be made from Scripture that when we accept Jesus, His Spirit comes and takes up residence within us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And I believe that's true. For others, it seems like either they're unaware that this all happened at one time. Or for others, I don't know, it could possibly be two separate events. I have a, a good friend of mine, um, was raised a Baptist, became a Baptist pastor, and somewhere along the journey, he began hanging out with some crazy Pentecostal charismatics, got filled with the Holy Spirit, right? And so, you know, he, there may very well have been the seeds, the, the, the presence of God, by the Holy Spirit, alive and active in his heart, his whole journey. Um, but he was unaware. And at some point on the journey, his eyes were open, awareness came, and there was, for lack of a better term, an activation. 
the, the switch was turned on. Or he let the gifts actually come out. And he gave acknowledgement to, oh, that inspiration I got all those years in sermon preparation. Maybe that was actually the Holy Spirit speaking to me. And not just my brilliance. <laughs> and when I'm counseling with someone and suddenly I have this incredible wisdom, I could just speak life into their lives. I didn't learn that when I went to school to become you know, a clinical psychologist. So for some people, the awareness of it happens all at once. For others, it seems to come at separate times. It manifests later on. For me, I was led to Christ, and that same night after I accepted Jesus, they laid hands on me and prayed for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I got hammered by God that night. I did. My life changed. Never been the same since. So for me, it was one and the same. What was the timeline for these Galatians? Was it one and the same event? Who knows? I'm not sure if it really matters. But we do know this, that part of their spiritual journey with Paul to Christ, the scriptures tell us that the Galatians received the Spirit. The Spirit's there. It's in them. And even with that, they still have been led astray. And so Paul challenges these spirit-filled Galatians with this question. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Paul's asking them, how did you get here? And it's a rhetorical question. <laughs> of course it wasn't by works of the law. It was by grace, through faith, by believing what they'd heard in the gospel of grace. Verse 3, are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? And the short answer is yes. <laughs> they are absolutely that foolish. Is that what they're trying to do? That's absolutely what they're trying to do. You know what? And throughout church history, we've seen this pattern play out again and again and again and again and again. And it ought not be. I'm determined to not let it be the pattern of my own life. My own walk with God. I'm like 40 years in. I don't, I have no intention of ever walking away from the gifts of the Spirit or being led by the Spirit's presence and working in my life. But throughout church history, moves of God, moves of God have come and moves of God go. And we do it for this very reason. They begin by the Spirit. They begin by a moving of the Holy Spirit. And they die out and finish, as it's written here in Galatians, by means of the flesh. Denominations have begun as moves of the Spirit. And some of those very denominations no longer embrace the gifts of the Spirit. Some of them have even embraced a dispensational um, theology concerning the gifts of the Spirit. That they're no longer active today. That they die out with the early church and I want to I want to grab them and say, oh, you idiots. Don't you know your own history? In your own history, long after the first century church came to a close, long after the canon of scripture was settled, there was a move of God in your own denomination. And now you say it no longer happens that way? We're a vineyard church. And I've actually had to show people videos of John Wimber describing what it was like when the Holy Spirit showed up in his church the first time. And what a mess it made. It wasn't what he expected. 
People in the church got upset. He got upset. He said he went home that night and he was like, God, you know, I'm messing up my church. And God said to him, when did it become your church? He was up all night searching the scriptures. And he found some stuff. He spoke to some friends. And God revealed that it was him. And a great move of God happened on earth in our lifetime in the vineyard. I'm, I, I think it's a high honor that we could be associated with such fine people. And yet there are vineyard churches that have all but rejected the gifts of the Spirit. We're not so far from the Galatians. Having begun by the Spirit, are we now trying to finish in the flesh? Wimber once made the point that a move of God usually goes through three phases. And it's ten years up, ten years of a plateau, and ten years down. The vineyard's 40 years old. Okay. Wimber said that at some point in the movement, there needs to be some type of revival or renewal, lest it dies. It breaks my heart when I see many who've abandoned their spirit-filled roots. If we choose to live a spirit-filled life, we will eventually, all of you will eventually be challenged with this option. Will you choose respectability or will you choose the anointing? Will you choose respectability or will you choose the anointing? Will you risk looking foolish once again? See, in the beginning, when passion is high and you're on fire and it's the beginning and a move of God's happening, we don't care about looking foolish. It's exciting. Everybody's doing it. But you get 30 years in, and you're on that downward slope, and suddenly God shows up again, and you're like, hey, I've got a church building, and I've got a bunch of people. And some of them are a little bit older, and they're a little bit more reserved, and they give a lot of money. And if the Holy Spirit showed up again, and people are shaking and shouting, or, or falling on the floor, or the, some, the gift of tongues, oh my God, being used, what, what if these pillars of the faith... What if, what if these supporters of the church get offended? Because it doesn't seem to be proper. It doesn't seem to be respectable. What if they'll leave my church? Will I still be able to pay the bills? These are some of the challenges that pastors are faced with. So which way will they go? Will they choose respectability? Will they choose looking good? Or will they be a fool for Christ? Will they embrace the life of the Spirit, even if it doesn't make them always look like they got it all together? Well, aren't you lucky? <laughs> you got me. <laughs> You're very kind. I'm going to choose the Spirit every time. I've told you before, I'll say it again, I'm okay with messy. I think my job isn't to prevent messes. I think my job is to clean up messes. And so I would rather have people who are taking the risks of faith, who are taking leaps of faith, who are trying honestly, even imperfectly, to follow after God. And then if it gets messy, clean up the mess. Encourage them, explain it to the people, and move forward together. Rather than shut it down. Rather than Wrap the Holy Spirit up and duct tape and leave them stuck in a corner somewhere. I don't want that. 
I don't want that. I won't do that. I absolutely won't do that. I want to see the presence of God welcome in our midst. For me, as a pastor and a leader, I'm on a rabbit trail here, so... I want to see, I want the Holy Spirit to be welcome to move freely in his church that has been entrusted to my care. Some people are afraid that visitors will be offended. I would, I'm much more concerned that God will be offended. I'm much more concerned with that. Because I'm thinking this, even if it's messy, if it's really God, isn't that why we come to church? I mean, it's so much better when he shows up. I've done it both ways, guys. I've done it when he shows up, and I've done it when he hasn't. I'm not that good. <laughs> Can't do this without him. It's better with him than without him. But far too many, I mean, most churches today, they actually run better without the Holy Spirit than with the Holy Spirit because their programs are so finely tuned. And, oh, they have three services on a Sunday. And so you've got to get that first service people out so the parking lot's empty, so there's space for the second service people to park before the second service starts. But what happened if God showed up? in the first service, and you're praying for people after the sermon, and, and the whole front of the church has bodies on the floor. How are they going to get their cars out of the parking lot? <laughs> Park on the street, man. I don't care. <laughs> so we're faced with this challenge. We will be challenged with this option. Will we choose respectability, or will we choose the anointing? Will we once again embrace what God is currently doing in our midst? Or will we choose sophistication, respectability, and balance? <laughs> you know what balance is? Balance is standing in the middle of the road waiting for a truck to run you over. That's balance. I don't think there ought to be anything about our life in Jesus that should be balanced. It should be wild. It should be extreme. It should be passionate. It should be out on the cutting edge. It should be out beyond that. It should be leap of faith after leap of faith. I don't want to stay in the middle of anything. Years ago, somebody wrote a book of the history of the early vineyard called The Quest for the Radical Middle. And he made some pretty good points in it, but I think it's a horrible title. The Quest for the Radical Middle. There's nothing radical about the middle. There's nothing radical about standing in the middle of the road. You know what's radical? I'm going to go after God. I'm going to follow him with reckless abandon. Nadine and I have lived our lives this way. And I'm just, just as an example, I'm not, this is, I'm not bragging. You know, four times on our life together, we've been married 35 years. We followed God, and because of following him, our income got cut in half or more. Why? Because God told us to do something else, radical, wild, or different. And we would do it again if he told us to. My life is not my own. I'm just grateful Nadine's staying with me. <laughs> My life is his. Your life is his. Oh, God. I want to be extreme. I don't want to be lukewarm. I want to be hot or cold. I had a vision once in the presence of God. It was unbelievable. And as part of the vision, God touched me and... and when I opened my eyes, I saw this giant mouth in front of me, still on the rabbit trail. <laughs> and 
when I open my eyes in the spirit, there's this giant mouth in front of me and God swallows me and takes me down into his heart. It was the, the most safe and loving place I've ever experienced in my whole life. It was an amazing experience in the presence of God. I remember sharing that with a friend once. He says, he said, Tom, that's awesome. I said, what do you mean? He says, obviously, you're not lukewarm, <laughs> right? Because it says in Revelation that if we were lukewarm, he would spit us out of his mouth. He said, he did not spit you out of his mouth. I'm like, oh, man, that's, I never thought of that before. That's pretty cool. I, I don't want to be lukewarm. I don't want the question of the radical mill. I don't want balance. I want God. I want all of God. I want as much of him as he wants to give out. I don't think we've ever come close to the fullness of his presence. I think we're still only scratching the surface. There's so much more. Why would we settle for less? Why would we settle for balance? And if I could have him and it cost me something as insignificant as respectability, I'm willing to pay that price. The Galatians were faced with this. And they were succumbing to the, to the peer pressure of these Jewish believers. Even to the point when men like Peter, who walked with, Peter walked on water. He saw Jesus raise the dead, multiply food. He spoke to the resurrected Lord. He was the one who got up and spoke at Pentecost. And Peter is succumbing to what? Respectability. Sadly, over the years, I've seen many who, like the Galatians, after having begun by means of the Spirit, are now trying to finish by means of the flesh. Lord, have mercy on us. May we choose again and again and again a life in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not a prize earned through the works of the law. That's not how the Galatians got the Spirit. It's not how we got it. It's a gift. It's a free gift of God himself. God himself to us. Just like the Galatians, we receive this free gift of the Spirit, and we do it simply through faith, through believing, through trusting God. Again, commentator David Guzik I found his uh, commentaries on Galatians to be very helpful as I prepare these messages. This is what he writes concerning this. He says, A Gentile is told he must come under the law of Moses or God will not bless him. This means he must be circumcised according to the law of Moses. So he goes in for the operation and as soon as the cut is made, the Holy Spirit is poured out on him. Is this how it works? Of course not. We receive the Holy Spirit by faith, not by coming under the works of the law. This is exactly what these Jewish believers were trying to heap upon these Gentiles, these new followers of Christ. Can you imagine? Guys, it's a gift. It's always been a gift. It's still a gift. It's not by working for it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a gift. You know what it would be? It would be earned income. Right? You do your job all week, at the end of the week, your employer gives you a check. That's not a gift, right? That's not a prize. You earned that. You put the blood, the sweat, the tears in. You made the effort. You earned that check. That's not a gift. 
If one of my bosses had presented my check to me, wrapped up in a gift with a bow, I'd be pretty offended. Dude, you're not doing me a favor. I was here all week long doing everything you asked me to do and probably more. This is no gift. I earned this. This is mine. I have every right to this. That's not how it is with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is absolutely a free gift, just like salvation. It's all by grace. And Jesus made it perfectly clear that if we wanted the Spirit, all we needed to do was ask for it. That's all that was necessary. Luke chapter 11, verses 9 to 13. Love these verses. Jesus speaking says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, get this, how much more? Will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Guys, our Heavenly Father, he's a good dad. And if we ask him for the Holy Spirit, he'll give us good stuff. I am so vastly more confident in the Holy Spirit's ability to lead me than I am in the devil's ability to deceive me. I ask God to speak to me. I ask for the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and I believe that he's going to give me those gifts, and they're good. That if I ask him for the Holy Spirit, he's not going to give me a demonic spirit. Doesn't that make sense? Even if it works differently than I expected it to, even if it may, may, may humble me, or even maybe make me look foolish. I didn't... Uh, I remember the first time I went up to Toronto. It's got to be like a 20-year-old story. Got in, a, got in a van with a bunch of pastors from West Virginia. This is when laughter was breaking out in Toronto for the first time. And we drive up there, and they pray for me. At the end of one service, had everybody line up. I go up and get some prayer. And I'm standing there, and my left leg is doing its best Elvis Presley you know, imitation. My, my left leg is just shaking. I couldn't get it to stop shaking. It just shook for a long time. Uh, why did God do it that way? I don't really know. But it was him. It was his presence on me. You know, and sometimes if you take, you know, you ever put your finger in a socket to grab a live wire? Man, when power touches you, your body reacts. Power of God was touching me. My body was responding to it. I never intended to look like Elvis, but I did for a couple hours that night. And that was a good gift. Verse 4. Have you experienced, Paul's writing to the Galatians, have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain, that if they stay this course, the course of Jesus plus, Jesus plus works, Jesus plus law, then yeah, it's all been in vain. But if they return to the path of Christ alone, then no, it's not in vain. Threatened and attacked, obviously, but not in vain. You know, and it's hard. I have a lot of respect for Paul. It's not easy to have to be the one to stand up and say to people, Hey, I know you've been a believer a long time. I know that you've been on this journey. But my friend, I love you. you got this wrong. You've got your own thoughts. You've got your own opinions. 
But Jesus plus is not the way to go. So we'll finish with verse 5. So again, Paul writes, So again I ask, Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law? Or by you believing what you heard? So again, Paul, he's challenging them and he's doing it with a direct question. See, apparently, the Galatians had seen supernatural activity. Miracles had been worked among them because they'd been filled with the Holy Spirit. They never experienced this under the law. Under the Old Covenant, occasionally, there would be some supernatural power demonstrated. But it only happened through rare individuals. A prophet would rise up. And God, for, for a moment or for a season, would work on someone's life. Under the New Covenant, the rules are all changed. It's not special people that experience the presence of God under special occasions. No! Christ comes and makes his home in every believer's heart. There are no super Christians. There are no super apostles. Every single person. Like Wimbo used to say, everyone gets to play. Because the same Holy Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, this is the point I made last week in Easter, lives inside you. The very same spirit, that very same power. So they saw miracles. Not just Paul did miracles when he visited them. They saw miracles because the Spirit lives in them. So supernatural activity did take place. But it was not by the law. It was by believing, by putting their trust in Christ because they'd heard the gospel of grace. And somehow, these Galatians are deceived by these Jewish believers. Deceived into thinking that their spiritual growth or maturity could be achieved through works of the law instead of continuing in simple faith and loving intimacy with Jesus. So I'm going to meddle for a second. You've heard me say similar things before. Guys, God gives me dreams and visions not because I'm good. He gives me dreams and visions because he's good. Listen to me. I'm not good. Ask Nadine. She'll tell you. If you don't believe her, you can talk to one of my kids. I experience dreams and visions because he's good, not because I'm good. I've experienced dreams and visions not because I'm special, but because he's extraordinary. That he gives good gifts whether we deserve them or not. And so, is there value to some of the Christian disciplines? I think it's a good thing to read the word. I think it's a wonderful thing to pray. I love to worship him, can you tell? These, these, are good, these aren't bad things to do. My encouragement to you is this. Don't do them so that you think you'll somehow make yourself acceptable to God and that then maybe He'll use you. Or then maybe you'll experience the move of His Spirit in your life. No, please. Read the Word, but do it from the perspective of relationship. Oh God, reveal yourself to me in your Word. Speak to my heart by what's written in your Word. Oh God, let me worship you today so that we can connect in a new and fresh and unique way. Oh God, when I pray today, I'm I'm not just punching my time clock. I'm not just checking things off my to-do list. But that we're having a conversation. And it's relational and it's intimate. And there's life on it. Do you see the difference? 
Am I making sense? I've been on both sides of this. I have, I have a decade's worth of journals on my bookshelf that are a testament to just how dutiful and how committed and how consistent I can be. And I, I, I would read, you know, if you read three chapters of the Bible, you can get through it in a year. I would read three chapters every day. And I'd underline the things that spoke to me. And I'd take that verse of those three chapters that most spoke to me and I'd write it out on the top page of my journal with the date. And then I'd write my thoughts and reflections on that verse. And then I would close out with a prayer. And oh, I was on a system of memorizing scriptures. So I'd put up in the right, upper right hand corner the chapter and verses of the scriptures I would memorize in that day. And I did it for a decade. Did I gain any benefit out of it? Sure, I, I knew the word better. But I tell you what, after a decade, I hated it. I despised it. Because it felt like I was punching a clock. And though I could check it off on my to-do list, yet again that day, I felt no closer to God. As a matter of fact, because it was so much work and so much a job, I actually began to despise God because of it. Because I thought this was a yoke of burden he put on me. So is journaling bad? No. Is memorizing scripture bad? No. Why was I doing it? To try and make myself something. Instead of being in relationship with him. He could speak through a donkey, guys. He could do anything. He could speak through me. And it's not because I bring anything to the table. I come to the table bankrupt. He brings everything. He lays a feast out before me. And the best portion of that feast is that he's sitting at the table. And he longs that I sit with him. Are you here in my heart? Do you get the difference? So I'm not, if you find, let me say it this way. Go where the life is. This is, what I, this is my epiphany after 10 years of doing journaling. Oh God, this ain't working for me anymore. And he put this on my heart, go where there's life. He said, Tom, if you go where there's life, you'll find me there. So what I've discovered is, you know what? I've gone through seasons where reading the scripture is filled with life for me. It's like the words that jump off the page and bite me on the face. And then there are other times there's nothing. I'll hold up that book. It's like, man, there got to be something good in here somewhere. I can't find it. For whatever reason, I'm now in a season where there's not life on that. And so I try something else. I'll try worship. I'll pick up my guitar worshiping him. And there are times it's like, man, bang, I can connect so easily. Other times, the guitar is an obstacle. I'm so focused on learning that new chord or playing the song correctly that the guitar actually has become a hindrance to connecting with God. It's become works. Intercession, the same thing. There are times where intercession, I feel no more closer to God than when I'm praying for somebody else. It's other-focused. Right? I come boldly before the throne of grace on behalf of somebody that I care about. And I can actually imagine myself standing before the throne of God, speaking directly to my Father, my heart, my concern for a loved one. It's extraordinarily life-giving. And there are other times it's just like, it's just rote. Right? Automatic prayers. I've said this a hundred times before. So what do I do? I go with his life. And if I'm doing something and there's no life on it, well, I put that aside for a season. I try something else. I go for a walk in the park. And I'll talk to him like I talk to you. And I'll find life on that. And if I find life, I park there for a while. 
I'll just do that until the light runs out and I realize, oh, now it's something else. What's the difference? Works versus relationship. You know, Christians in the 21st century, we, we are really good at work still. Oh, that we would choose again and again and again that it be relational. All right, let me finish up. A lot of rabbit trails today. So where are you today? Where do you find yourself? As I passionately poured out my heart this morning. Are you on the side of law? Or are you on the side of grace? Have you, like so many others, little by little, heaped upon yourself bits and pieces of the law? Until you too feel like I did, spiritually suffocated and restricted and stifled? Or have you grasped and captured the wonders of grace? Well, maybe today you're sitting here and you think, you know what? I need to be set free. I think Tom's speaking right to my heart. That's exactly where I am. I don't know how I got here. I'm not even sure I was here. But I began in the spirit and now I'm trying to finish up in the flesh. Oh, I want to remind you again this morning just how amazing grace is. It wasn't about your performance in the beginning. And if your next step is back to grace, it's not about performance now either. Just turn around and focus in on him, that's all. So would you like to be set free? Would you like to return again to grace, to freedom, to life, to life in the spirit? And please stand up and let me pray for you. In fact, why don't we all stand? Oh, God, set us free this morning. There might be some of us, Lord, we've, we've been working so hard, we feel like our, our ankles and our wrists are shackled. Lord, it is for freedom. Your word says that it's for freedom that Christ set us free. Set us free from those shackles. Even those well-intentioned shackles, set us free, Lord. Lord, for some of us, we just got a few little things clinging on here and there. Lord, let the wind of your spirit blow. Blow that stuff off of us. Blow it off of our minds. Get it off of our shoulders. Get it out of our eyes. Blow the clouds away. Do it, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would release and set all of us free from the parasites, the blood-sucking, life-sucking parasites of performance-based Christianity. Set us free, Lord. Set us free. And help us, oh God, I pray, to live in the fullness of the freedom that is rightly ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen? Okay, let's finish up today's service with a final song.